Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 97 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Low Float Goat. And I'm joined here by my infamous co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, the House Street legend, an OG in the penny stock heydays with over 200 deals taken public. Richard Grieco's number one fan, JJ. How's it going? Good, brother. How are you, man? Richard <laughs> Grieco. How that cat's doing these days? Uh, uh, how you doing? I'm I'm doing great, man. How's uh, How's London Christmas time, man? Your first time over there? Yeah, I I love it. I love it. You know, I I'm, I'm a proud Canadian, but uh, you know, I, I'm not missing that minus forty weather. Holy cow! It's uh, you know, it got down to minus two here, and I still was like, ah, it's like the Bahamas. It's fine for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. All right. And our guest today is a partner, managing director, and China sector head at Hedgeye. Before joining Hedgeye, he worked at an asset management firm where he focused on China equities, a CFA chart holder, and graduated cum laude from Wharton. He has been featured on Bloomberg, Barron's Fast Money, and many more. I am talking about Felix Wang. Felix, how's it going, man? Nice to meet you, Ray. I love the intros that you guys give. It's really, really entertaining. <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Felix. Thanks so much, man. And and just, you know, like I was telling you before, just happy to have you on. We've been looking for a while to get somebody on who specializes in China. Uh, just really fascinating, you know, given all the factors that go on here china u.s relations um i know even some are calling this cold war 2.0 um but the economies are so intermingled intercorrelated should be a great one but before jumping into it felix um can you just give us an introduction to yourself and how you got into finance and markets yeah well first of all thanks for inviting me i'm honored to be here uh frankly i got into finance and into the markets because I like stocks. I like picking stocks. I like diving into different companies, picking apart their financials, trying to figure out, you know, what's actually going on, talking to management teams, talking to investors. I like that part of the job. It's, I feel like I found my niche, which is in research and, and, and being an analyst and deep diving into, you know, certain companies that others, I think, should explore. Um, I mean, obviously, everyone knows the mega caps out there, those companies that I talked on CNBC and Bloomberg and so forth. But frankly, I'm more optimistic on the up and coming companies in particularly in China, the disruptors uh, in China, whether they're public or private companies. Those are the companies I think people should focus more on because RI on those companies could be astronomically higher than uh, a lot of the so-called old Chinese, you know, me- mega caps, the, the, the BATs, so to speak. So mm-hmm. um, that's got me, you know, that's why I'm I'm here at Hedgeye. I, uh, I've been at Hedgeye for almost 12 years now, uh, over a decade of covering China uh, in some respect. And right now, you know, I'm mostly continuing to build on my coverage space. I can I would say most of my, Bread and butter coverage list is, is more on retail and e-commerce, also on the pan entertainment se- sector. But one thing, Ray, that's really interesting about China that uh, many people may not know about is when you cover a particular stock or when you cover a particular industry in China, you actually have to cover 10 others. The reason why is because a lot of the large com- conglomerates in China, they want to conquer everything. You know, mm-hmm. that's a different type of mentality than, you know, here in the U.S. Um, where you specialize in what you're good at, right? And and then you go further. Uh, in China, they're looking at, wow, I want to do everything. I want to do food delivery. I want to do robots, uh, you know, autonomous <laughs> driving. Uh, it doesn't matter where your so-called core competency came from. You just want to do something well that others have already done well in China. So there's kind of like a copycat type of phenomenon that's been ongoing, particularly in the tech space, particularly in the internet space in China. So, so it's exciting because I get to, you know, learn a lot about different ecosystems, right. And not just focus on one particular ecosystem when you're a China analyst. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating, and it's it's probably ever changing, and so that probably keeps it very interesting. The, the yeah. research fun, absolutely. Um, that's that's awesome. Um, and just just a quick second here to give a shout out to our sponsors of the podcast, Apex Trader and Top Step Funding. Any listener of this podcast that has the skills to pass an evaluation can become a prop trader, fully funded by either Apex Trader or Top Stem uh, Stop Top Step Funding. Our own micro e-futures trading community has many members who are now fully funded. No need to trade with your own money. Keep 90% of the profits. To learn more, visit our website at microefutures.com. So Felix, um, just curious, day-to-day activities at Hedgehog, um, are you doing a lot of researching? What, what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, great, great question. So I have very weird hours because I have to cover China, mainland China, right? Um, you know, the the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and then also have to cover the U.S. side with the U.S. ADR. So depending on how the news flow uh, overnight, um, you know, my typical day is starts at 8 p.m., which uh, isn't great, but, uh, you know, I... And then, um, you know, I, I go through the news flow. I talk to clients on the Asia side. I go through my top ideas. So at Hedgeye, you know, we also have a, since this is more for retail traders kind of channel podcast here, we also have, a, I have it what I, what I call China Pro product. So basically, I go through a lot of my actionable ideas, whether you're a trader, whether you're a more long-term investor, there's always something there in terms of opportunities to, to make some money um, with China equities. Um, so that's just my five-second pitch there on my product. But look, I, I stop work at around 8 p.m. I go through the news flow. I go through my longer-term ideas. We call these black books because they're called deep dive um, presentations, deep dive, th- whether it's on a, th- a thesis um, with a particular industry or it could be just a single stock idea that I'm trying to pitch real hard, either long or short. That's the other difference between us and a typical, you know, research platform is many people are more yes men and, you know, talk to management teams and want to pump up their, their companies. Very few people actually go through the work and try to drive controversy, you know, and be skeptical mm-hmm. of what management is saying. So, I actually value a lot of my short ideas and Hedgeye as a group has been known, you know, w- with my talented colleagues, they've been known to pitch really, really successful short ideas, which you don't really nice. hear much on a typical Wall Street firm. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so my hours are, 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 are weird because then I, I guess some, you know, I, I'll pump my Red Bull, uh, get some <laughs> shots in before, you know, calling a night and then ding dong, you know, my alarm, wakes up at 6 a.m. again and check any kind of sort of U.S. news flow that pertains to my salsa. But, but then I get an afternoon nap out of it. So <laughs> I don't know if it's for everybody, but uh, it's, it's certainly interesting uh, being a China analyst. Yeah, yeah. Well, well you got you to gotta love it, I guess, with, with those type of hours. That's, exactly, uh... <laughs> exactly. I had a buddy of mine who was on the uh, Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi desk uh, in in currencies a while ago and man yeah he his hours were completely different you know yeah there 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 was a joke um uh in new york where if if you were a china analyst you you would get on the new york subway when people were coming back from exactly the late night parties yeah and you're like i'm going to work here yeah And, and uh and then you'll get back on the subway when everybody's actually going to work you're like oh my work is done so it's it was kind of the bummer and depressing but uh it is what it is are you are you in where are you now are you what part of the world so I, I i travel to china quite often actually um before covid now it's been a lot harder but thankfully with all the reopening that's ongoing with hong kong and then potentially just last night there was news of a reopening between the hong kong border with mainland china so that's mm-hmm. huge that would really bring in a lot of tourism and also business travel mm-hmm. for players like me to go over there but we're based in connecticut at the moment um that's where our headquarters are we have offices uh, across the u.s um and we're planning to, to to potentially set up an asian office soon oh cool so yeah excellent um before we jump into like uh i guess i'm like china 
focus questions, Felix. And I, I'm sure this question I'm going to ask could be nuanced and, and different from like trade to trade. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious a little bit too, if you give us some insights like onto the process on how you would like land on, on a trade or a trade thesis. Yeah, excellent. So I would say there are kind of four ways where in terms of my process versus how I can compete with the other hundred or so analysts out there, right, that that cover China equities. Um, for, first and foremost, um, you know, I do think data is a big part of our process. Um, here at Hedgeye, we have different sectors. I think we have 12 or so sectors. Everybody has a different process. Uh, but from what I can say on my process, you know, I'm very proud to set up a lot of proprietary databases. Um, if you're talking about e-commerce, like GMV is a particular KPI you got to keep an eye on. So I have my own data sources there. Uh, I keep an eye on how young users, young users in China, their engagement, their interests, their preferences, what they like, what they don't like. It's very important to, to keep an eye on them because they're the future. And they're exactly. going to be the future driving engine of, of China um, and elsewhere around the world since the, they love to travel. So it's important to keep it on that on them. Um, second of all is, you know, I, I have what I call uh big ideas. And I, I went through a little bit earlier, uh, Ray, uh, we call them black books. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like a big idea. It takes a lot of weeks to formulate and, you know, takes, but basically what I try to do is I'm trying to think out at least nine months ahead of a particular, either a secular trend or a kind of a hidden gem, right. Um, I'm on my coverage list where not many people are talking about it now, but they will. Um, whether and how they could benefit, what is their moat? You know, how can they thrive above others? Um, and I would just mention a couple of names that you know I, I've been proud to kind of nail. One was a company called Pindodo. Um, so this company, not many people knew about um, maybe four to five years ago, but they really competed with. The, the the bigger titans out there like Alibaba and JD. So Pinodor is an e-commerce company. It's an e-commerce platform. Um, and I call them the ugly duckling uh, because the ugly duckling never got any respect, never got any kind of, you know, actual attention from a lot of merchants out there because Baba and JD were basically saying, you know what, this little, this small disruptor here, they're not going to do anything to, 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 kind of you know disrupt our ecosystem that we've built for for a decade and guess what now they're the second most popular shopper platform in the world and uh, they've drastically grown up i'm just checking the market cap on this on this name now but it's at least i think 75 billion or so let me i mean it's it's yeah 110 100 so like this this company has tremendously matured, and now um, you know that was one of my a few years ago. I was doing a pair trade with Long Pindodor and Short Baba, um, mm-hmm. and that was my thesis. You got to keep an eye on these disruptors, how they can disrupt a lot of the ecosystems that incumbent companies in China took years to build, right? Um, there's another one right now that you have to keep an eye on. The, it's called ByteDance. I don't know if you guys know about it because they're the parent of TikTok. And oh. TikTok, everybody yeah. knows. Um, so, you know, they're... What's the ticker? Sorry, sorry Felix. Yeah, what's the yeah ticker exactly. Where is, it, where is it listed? <laughs> uh, you mean ByteDance? ByteDance is not listed. ByteDance ah. is, is a private company. Oh, okay. They're, they're, everybody wants them to list. Uh, but, uh, they're, um, they're, they're trying to figure out, you know, how to list and whether to split up the company, um, with TikTok US. And then they have their other Chinese TikTok, which is called Douyin, uh, in China. But my point here is it's important to keep disrupt, uh, eye on your disruptors, right? Mm-hmm. One of my short thesis calls that I've been very lucky to, 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 to see it is C Limited. So this was one of the companies um, last year that I pitched a lot. Also e-commerce company. 
they they have a you know they also a gaming company as well. But my point here to you, Ray, I'll keep it short. Is when you talk about process, right? You have to think about a lot of different factors. Where can you be different from the other analysts out there? Right. What is the market missing here that the market is going to talk about? Because it's not only being different, right? If the market participants are not going to talk about what you're going to talk about nine months later, then the stock's not going to move, right? So you, you're trying to be ahead of the game here, whether it's through data, whether it's through my Rolodex of contacts in China and Southeast Asia, whether it's through just having a, you know, a kind of a different perspective, a more longer term oriented kind of a disruptive perspective mm-hmm. um, is how I think about ideas. Cool. Yeah. I had a quick question about that. Uh, you know, this whole disruptor, disruptor thing has been very, you know, it's, it's been, you know, it's been the bell of the ball for the last five, 10 years in a cheap money, low interest rate environment. Now, you know, people, especially institutional investors after things like WeWork and some of the things that have gone on, not that WeWork's a Chinese company, but how much do you actually look at the management and see how fiscally responsible they are what their burn rates are for cash, how they're managing the money that investors are giving them to use. You know, what, what is your sort of thoughts on that? How do you, what, because I know as a CFA and a financial analyst, I've been in the business for 30 years and, uh, you know, I did my first Hong Kong listing uh, of, you know, of a, of a Chinese company back in 1997. Uh, we took that public and we took that stock from around 50 cents up to 17 bucks. And uh, we got rid of 300 million shares between $5 and 17. So I know that, you know, the liquidity exists and that sort of thing. But what, what nowadays do you look for when people are making investment decisions? Because a lot of these founders who have disruptive technologies, um, you know, they go around spending money like it's going like through poop, through a goose. And <laughs> they're, you know, and it, you know, it's all great. It's great yeah. when when people have a hundred billion dollars to just throw away, you know, like SoftBank, but in this day and age now, people are going to be worried about the bottom line. What do you look for? What are your metrics for profitability, use of funds, things like that? Let's dig down. And yeah, excellent question. Um, You know, again, when I think about long ideas, when I think about short ideas, I look at what management in some respect is doing with their uh, capital uh, that investors are giving to them. Are they giving them, you know, are they friendly with dividend policy or, you know, share repurchases? Or are they using it to boost up stock comp, which yeah. has been controversial lately to, you know, when you look at adjusted EBITDA X stock comp, you know, they're trying to uh, kind of have some kind of financial engineering here to boost their results and and at the same time retain their employees, right? So, um you know, all the all of that matters. And uh and some companies which I don't like, they are in a never ending loss kind of spiral. Um that's only okay if you can show there's still growth or there's still potential in your company because then if your if your growth goes away then it's a you know it's your double whammy right exactly. so you have yeah. you have revenues basically falling uh revenue growth disappearing and then you're still dealing with losses and your losses get the balloon up just just because of you know all the operating leverage there and so forth so i i think some companies are are realizing this and this year in particular 2022 has been a year of cost cutting um, just because, and not not just because of Chinese companies, but I was just exactly, saying, you know, yeah. tech companies, yeah. um, internet companies. So just because people, things are slowing down, right? And you have a lot of um, macro related type of or geopolitical related risks and so forth, inflation, you know, a, a lot of things going on that's leading to layoffs and so forth. So at the end of the day, can you show that you can cut the corporate fat? Yeah, you can get leaner, and you can drive. Uh, for some of my companies that are still loss making, is there a pathway forward to profitability? But I, I think this is an interesting question, JJ, because some investors I talk to, um, 
they like the idea of oh, okay, finally, you know, we we can say all right, we, we you know maybe there's a PE that we can re-rate these guys <laughs> on, rather than using obscure you know metrics uh, for um, unprofitable companies. But I tend to believe this is only a short-term phenomenon. At some point, like, and the reason I say this is because I I think of in my space at least five to ten Chinese companies that are profitable. Okay. But they have no growth. Like they have ah, a dead business. Okay. Got it. And Got guess it. where they're trading? Yeah. They're trading, you know, they're they're trading single digit PEs. They're they're trading EV the sales of basically zero and you know, under ten dollars a share or even less than five dollars a share mm-hmm. equity value because no one sees a future. Yeah, exactly. Right. So the the you sizzles get, the sizzles yeah. what people buy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's so mistake, you yeah. gotta show you gotta show both parts. Yeah, you gotta show an ability to to your to your point physically control your operational costs. Yeah. Um, and make good investments with high ROI. Yeah. And you have to show that all right, we're not a you know, um, uh, kind of a I will, will like to use the analogy with a cruise ship. Um, you know, <laughs> kind of a cruise to nowhere type of cruise. Yeah. Right. And you're dead in the water and there's yeah. no future. There's no innovation and you're yeah. not spending R and D. Yeah. Why would that excite investors? You know, that's true. Sure. Yeah. You're, you're, you're profitable. Who, who cares? Um, so I, I, I think right now, you know, that's where I kind of differ with some of my uh, clients opinions on, you know, a lot of the underperformers that are basically pitching to investors, hey, we're, you know, hey, we're not going to be profitable. Yay, you know, give us one more year. There's a road path, uh, there's a road, there's a pathway forward to profitability. I just don't think it's enough for many of those companies that realize they don't have a competitive edge. Got it. Um, So to me, I would, you know, to me, it could be a, uh, a uh, it could be a, um, What's the word? It could be a tricky situation, and you could be trapped by those so-called, uh, you know, quick, uh, quick profitable follow-up. ideas. Now, yeah, quick follow-up. You were saying how um, I'm I'm fascinated uh, because I've done this for so long. The the whole employee compensation through equity issuance, uh, and I've never actually been able to ask a CFA uh, the concept of S eight paper in the United States. Um, and employee benefit paper, some of these companies that you'll see, and I'm not talking Chinese companies, like, for example, there were companies like uh, Peloton and Palantir that had S8 offerings that were big enough to choke a Brontosaurus. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they have like a billion dollar S8. That's free stock, right? How does that figure into EBITDA and, and earnings? Because you get things like these things are just dilution pigs because, you know, these people are doling out S8 stock to anyone who will stick out their tongue. And, you know, they're just diluting the float over and over and over again. So you could go in and buy 100 million shares, but if somebody's selling 400 million shares, stock's not going to go up, right? So I've seen that over and over again on companies. Yeah. Like, you know, do you, how do you, do you, do you look for things like unusually large S8s as a warning sign? Because that's pretty much a blank check. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Okay. I, I do. Um, I, I, you know, I can only speak on my Chinese companies. Actually, I talked to one of the more longer term investors a few weeks ago. They were basically saying, well, yeah, China may look interesting, but for many years, you know, their shares outstanding just kept on growing. And, uh, and they're, you know, also the dot com just got out of control. So yeah. we, as current shareholders, we just get diluted immediately. So exactly. how do they resolve that? It's a difficult question, JJ. I I think it's, you know, kind of on case by case basis. Um, I, I actually think this is just my personal view on this, but if you're loss making and you're, you know, using stock comp as a, financial engineering tool to you know adjust certain items to make say for example you know operating income or even adjust the EBITDA look better than it is that is a red flag I actually have seen this in 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 U.S. companies as well I used to cover U.S. as well so you know it's 
it's an ongoing and it's it's mainly the CFO, right? The, the CFO is doing this. Um, now, the savvy investor will always try to figure out what is one time and what is, you know, what is recurring. Mm-hmm. But not everybody will recognize this when they print the results and they're like, hey, that's great. You know, hey, you know, EBITDA is wow, through, through the roof, yeah, 30%. Exactly. But they, they have so many one-time items that they're mm-hmm. excluding so as an analyst, you know, I go through and say, all right, this is bullshit. All right, this <laughs> this is, yeah. okay, reasonable. Okay, this is not right. So, and, and, and the hedge fund guys and the, and the long-only guys, they're doing the same thing. So, okay. you know, what the press reports as so-called adjusted earnings is not really what the general, I would say, the more savvy business community is thinking about in terms of what the company reported. Right. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, that, yeah. Great. Thanks for clearing that up. So hopefully, you know, hopefully in the longer term, we'll see less and less of these so-called deviations. And mm-hmm. um, I'm sure the SEC will probably get involved at some point as well. So, so Felix, um, how, how did this come about your main focus being on um, China markets? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, you know, I, I've actually, uh, well, I'm Chinese. First of all, um, and um, you know, in my earlier point, I, I've always wanted to cover something to kind of broaden my knowledge base. Um, I didn't want to be just uh, limited to one particular sector or vertical. Although, I, you know, in my coverage space, I, uh, I tend to have more expertise in certain industries in China, but it's it's a lot of fun talking Chinese stocks, covering Chinese equities, because you get to talk about a lot of different technologies, a lot of different ways people can innovate, a lot of different up-and-coming entrepreneurs that you can talk about. You know, I I, I still think China is the number two economy in the world for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, the last few years have been very difficult for various reasons, but, you know, you can't ignore China as an investor. They're just too many opportunities there um long or short uh so you know um what i would say i'm just pitching china right now because i'm getting more and more bullish on china next year mm. is that you know institutional interest at least right now has been extreme you know all-time lows just given what's going on with the listing and then the zero covid policy and, and so forth but things are turning those hurdles are going away and, uh, you know, I, I think next year could be a very interesting year to, to, to focus on China equities. And you don't want to miss out, um, yeah. particularly when the rest of the world, if you think about the U.S., Europe, they're going through their own struggles. So we're not, you know, if you talk oh, to a lot of the global investors, they're not really that confident things can turn around. Whereas for China, there's probably a higher probability things could turn around and sooner than later. And we were looking to say, you know, it said just a couple of days ago, or even today, it said the Public Accounting uh, Oversight Board, mm. uh, you know, they they moved 30 people out there and, and uh, they said it. they have secured complete access to inspect Chinese-based audit firms for the first time in history. Uh, and that resets the three-year delisting uh, clock for Chinese companies on American stock exchanges. That's, you know, obviously great news for, for the companies that you cover, probably, you know, that uh, are intending to list over here or have listed already. Oh, it's, 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 to me, this has been one of the, I mean, if, if you're fond, you, you probably have a governance, you know, department, right? And, you know, this has been one of the issues. How can you invest in something that could be delisted next day? Yeah. Um, so this is a big burden off of, thinking about investing in Chinese mm-hmm. stocks. And, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've basically said, you know, to my clients in the past that there was only a 1% or less than 1% risk of a delisting, just because if you think about what the U.S. has to gain from here, um, obviously it's easier to say what China gets the gain because China wants to keep their listings in New York and your global of investor course, base, yeah. you know, funding and so forth. That's yeah. easy. That's understandable. But the U.S. gains a lot too because never in the history between China and U.S. relationship have China 
you know, opened up the books to where they are now, where they can exactly. see a lot of the Chinese companies and what they do. So they want to get a victory lap too, right? So they don't want to create anything to not have a deal. Then nobody wins at all. So I, I think, you know, nowadays when you talk to a lot of investors, pretty much, you know, the delisting risk is, is very minimal now. I, I don't think it's going to happen at all. The way forward on both parties have been through quote unquote cooperation and partnership and constant dialogue. These are important words um, from both sides. So I, I think that's, that's going to continue. This isn't just that, you know, one step solves everything, but so far it's just it's many steps towards a, yeah, towards dialogue and eventually towards a deal that everybody can, can appreciate and, and use going forward. So, so Felix, um, kind of, kind of like what I um, mentioned in the uh, the beginning of the podcast about the the relations between U.S. or, or maybe like the tension that um, there is between the U.S. and China on certain fronts. Um, you know, like I'm just a retail trader at home. Um, you know, and this is something I, I, I like speculate on and think a lot um, about a lot is. You know, and you spoke a little bit to how maybe some uh, institutional investors think about this. And I imagine there's varying opinions where some are maybe probably scared um, to invest. Maybe some see an opportunity. Um, I, I guess just what are kind of on your thoughts on this? I just I guess on maybe like the political front or, or like, you know, the, the tensions um, that there are between countries. Yeah, geopolitics when it comes to China, U.S., there are uh, it ebbs and flows. Right. And um but what I will say right now, if you look at a couple of things, so I think Biden and Xi are warming up to to each other. One thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, when both of them were VPs, they were like best buds. Go over the videos like 12 years ago when they greeted each other and, you know, how they talk, the body language. They were like BFFs. <laughs> and then... Biden, when he met Xi, you know, at the G20 meeting uh, a month ago, he was giddy with excitement. He was practically running up to Xi to shake his hand and stuff. So, I, you know, I, I generally think that there's been a lot in terms of rhetoric. There's been a lot in terms of instilling fear uh, on what China could do, whether it's invasion, you know, and things of that nature. But you got to think about it from a politics perspective. So at the end of the day, it's all about politics. Nobody wants to look weak. Um, right. And, you know, China's the number two economy. Well, if U.S. is the number one economy, just like in sports, you know, number one and number two probably are very competitive. Um, if China was number 50, then, you know, there wouldn't be an issue. But because it's one, two going head to head, there's always going to be some tensions. But what I would say is both sides have said this for years that the best way forward for both countries is to cooperate and not go into conflict and to find ways to, you know, strengthen what China, U.S. can do together because each country has their own strengths, right? So I think I generally think that's the best way forward. And we're seeing it now with, you know, Xi finally getting out of his bunker, so to speak, for three years where he hasn't seen a single person with, with his mask on. He's going around and meeting with world leaders, not just Biden, but everybody um, and shaking hands and trying to have a dialogue. And try to try to put China there as more of a, you know, hey, we don't want to isolate ourselves. Um, we know there's this Ukraine-Russia conflict there, but we don't want to pay much attention to it. And we don't talk about it, actually, you know, actually uh, outwardly, right? So we want to be partners with all of you guys, whether it's through trade, whether through communication, and so forth. So I, I think I think that's a very positive step and showing that China can be a partner, not an enemy to many of the countries out there. I mean, China has, it's filled with a lot of controversies, right? And we can talk about those as well. But generally speaking, Xi is going out there and saying, look, I, I generally think China can become better if we partner with everybody else rather than being isolated and, you know, try to 
be more protecting protection or protectionism. Yeah, right. So I, I think um, that is a shift in from the political angle. And also from the US angle, I don't know if you've noticed, but gradually and gradually the 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 relationship is getting better. You know, a lot of the Chinese entities that were on the so-called uh you know don't don't do business with entities or and some some of those companies were taken off that list now the relationship with uh, a lot of the sensitive technology companies are also mending that that chip rule that chip act right on the semiconductor well there have been some tweaks to that to that act since the meeting with she so I'm not a you know a, a more of a geopolitics type of analyst here, but to me these are all mini steps towards rebuilding some kind of connection and communication between mm-hmm. the two largest countries by economy in the world. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and the, the the economies are so you know intermingled, inter- interdependent. Yes. I, I would I would imagine it's probably in you know both countries' interest to you know not be at odds with each other uh, just by, from a financial standpoint. And you raise a great point because one of the analysis that I'm doing right now that I'm going to share with clients next week is how do U.S. and European companies benefit from China's reopening? Mm. Now, that's something not many people are thinking about right now. Everyone's thinking about, okay, how China can benefit from China. Well, you know, just what you said, it's a global economy. China is too important to ignore. And if China gets better, a lot of different companies around the world will get better as well. So that's another opportunity to think about as an investor. Yeah. With the, um, well, I guess, I guess before, cause I want, I want to talk about the, the, the COVID restrictions, um, or like the uneasing of it. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, you know, being, you know, uh, the Western, side of the world um knowing what is true what's not coming from certain media outlets um on china i saw, I saw on your guys website um and you i mean you mentioned early in the podcast you take uh, many trips um to china or maybe you said that off air i forget um but uh i, I guess you know and not i know what this is a trading podcast but i i, I just want to because i know you're a researcher into this stuff um i guess from like a media angle but you guys also mentioned you got like boots on the ground you go out there and travel a lot dude you see any like disconnect maybe from like western media and then from like what you see and what you research uh there is definitely some disconnect between western media but not because not actually because they don't know you know what's actually going on but from more again more of a re- politics angle yeah than sure anything else yeah i i think you know i do have a lot of contacts uh i said in the beginning i have a pretty extensive rolodex um in china and southeast asia people i talk to on a, on a regular basis to figure out you know what's going on since i'm not in china 24 7 um look i i would say the the zero the pivot from zero covid policy is not gonna be a straight line it's not gonna be what we saw with the u s you know that was pretty smooth pretty uh, relatively right getting out of covid and people living with covid and understanding you know this is not really death threatening um and moving on with their business. China is a little bit different just because of the cultural differences. This the cultural difference is critical here. Um, that's this is why there's been a lot more fear on potential overrun of the healthcare facilities and the hospitals. And yeah, I completely understand that. But I also feel like this, you know, if you had to pick between two bad apples, you know, um, this is probably the less painful one then remain zero COVID lockdown forever. Um, you basically, there's a trade-off here, right? Which is you either save save lives potentially versus you have no career and you have no money to support your family. So either way, it's it's tough the decision um, and it's not easy. And people need to realize why China implemented zero COVID to, to begin with. Personally, I thought uh, with Delta, at least, that was the right decision. But now with Omicron, now with basically COVID being not death-threatening, you know, low symptoms, less severe symptoms, low hospitalization rate, 
eventually it's just going to be like a flu, you know, maybe a slightly mild to severe flu that people will just have to take flu medicine to combat it, but it's not going to result in deaths. Um, and that's the thinking. That's what the government is pushing right now. I think the other thing about China that's kind of um, unusual versus other countries around the world is how important government mouthpieces are. Mm. The reason I say this is there's a lot of uneducated people um, in China that rely heavily on what policy officials, what the government newspapers, what the government websites, social media channels, official accounts, so forth are saying. So their messaging is critical for China to get out of this zero COVID mindset, right? And their messaging has been changed. Um, it used to be, oh, you know, don't go out. COVID's bad. Oh my God, you know, stay away from people. Always wear masks. You know, and be very safe. Nowadays, yeah, there's always more of a message of being safe, but there. It's more like, okay, you can stay at home if you feel like you're a little bit sick. You can, there's a lot of self-help, self-help or self-medication or online health consultation resources available for you to make yourself better without the resources of a hospital and so forth. Because COVID has really died down to a level where it's, you know, again, not life-threatening. Um, that's the messaging that they're they're trying to uh, to convey to to the to the population. It's easier said than done, right? Because some people have, again, I said cultural differences. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's 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 the right way forward. Um, if if China is going to try to get through this and to more of a state of normalization um, as soon as possible. I understand from the media perspective, people are saying, well, this is going to result in, you know, 1 million plus deaths, 100 million infections and so forth. Okay, first of all, nobody knows. People are just throwing random numbers out there. Second of all, you, you've it, it's become a point where now you can't even track it because China has gotten rid of a lot of the COVID trackers they used on, you know, to be able to see who has COVID, who doesn't have COVID and so forth. So now you can just go into a lot of places without having a COVID test. Um, yeah. So that was critical to the whole reopening uh, type of theme. Um, so now, you know, it's more, all right, well, yeah, people are getting infected around you. Is it going to lead to mass panic, right? And an overrun on the hospitals? Or is it more like, all right, well, we've been pushing for this to happen. It's how happening. We just have to live with it. Okay. And on and the positive side is, guess what? We can now open our stores again. Mm-hmm. There's no lockdowns. We can go back to driving business to feed our families and stuff. I We can have have an opportunity to find another job now. Jobs have been decimated in China because of the lockdowns and also the internet crackdowns, right? Unemployment's been going up. Government's keeping an eye on those figures. So to me, again, to my previous point, reopening is the right way forward. There's no easy solution to any of this. You can't say, oh, they should have done this a long time ago. Oh, you know, we should do this X, Y, Z. So many uncertainties, right? Uh, particularly with what's going on with COVID. So, but generally speaking, I, I would say this is the right way forward. And that's why, um, you know, I'm, I'm as bullish as I've, I've been on, on China um, going into 2023. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And you, you've, you've mentioned too, Felix, that um, you, uh, you don't mind shorting certain Chinese companies, um, me myself, um, I almost like primarily short, uh, and um, yeah, I've, I've, I do like shorting Chinese companies as well. Um, you know, I, I guess you could say this about you know the stock market in general. There, there's going to be some bad actors there, um, some shadiness going on. Um, I suspect maybe some of these Chinese companies might be up to you know um, some no good. Um, we 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 just mentioned the the, the auditing 
bit. I know a bunch of these uh, companies don't were unaudited for a while. So I guess first I would ask this because I always found that fascinating. Like, uh, how could that even be? Like, how could that even come about? Like, they don't have to get get audited. Um, and then I guess just like uh, just just I guess speak on like maybe shadiness with some Chinese companies. Yeah, I, I don't think I have too much to add on the audited versus unaudited part. But what I would say on the shadiness part, I, I agree, you know, in the past, just because of what happened with Luck and Coffee, which has, you know, been in the headlines forever now mm-hmm. as a Chinese fraud. It is a Chinese fraud. But now that company has basically put everybody who was part of that fraud operations behind bars. They have new management team. They have new and and that company now, I don't cover it directly, but it's been on a resurgence. Like they're now considered potentially the Starbucks of China, so so to speak. I hmm. um so things can turn around. Okay. Right. Um that's one thing. Second thing is I think it's a mistake, and this is just my personal opinion, to try to find frauds in China. Um, because most people don't realize, you know, there's a lot of companies out there. The chance of finding a fraud is extremely low. Um, Luckin was just one case. Um, I know from my research, there's one more small company, but it's like a micro cap company that I don't give a crap about that turned out to have some accounting irregularities. But for the most part, these companies, you know, they have their own auditing, uh, uh, they have their own auditors and they're reputable auditors, probably from the biggest financial companies in the world. So they have accountability risk there too. So, you know, I, I feel like, sure, we can talk about Luckin and we can talk about, um, there was another Chinese fraud maybe 20 years ago. But to me, the Luckin scandal and fraud made China stronger. So going forward, when you look at these companies and you're worried, all right, am I going to be lo- looking at another Luckin? I think they've put in measures now to prevent any of this because it was just so damaging to psyche and investor mm-hmm. sentiment and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, you know, as an, as an investor, as a researcher, as an analyst, I feel more comfortable actually now investing in Chinese companies. Now, of course, there are always going to be short seller reports on China. Let me mention a few things on that because I actually talked to uh, one of my clients is actually in the short selling business. I can't re- reveal who he is, but mm-hmm. He made a very interesting statement that I think is worth sharing with everybody on this podcast, which is you have to understand how short seller reports work. It's not necessarily there's something wrong uh, with uh, the business per se. It's more about, you know, creating fear to to some extent. Mm. And since you already built a short position ahead of it, create some kind of uncertainty with the company will get people to, you know, maybe dump the stock. I'm not saying this is more of a pump and dump or reverse pump and dump in this case, but be careful with this. I mean, a lot of short sellers are in this business to profit from their reports, not necessarily to do good investigative research. So as a result, what I'm saying on this is one of the companies I covered, um, called YY, I was short this company, I think last year and the year before, Muddy Waters came out and shorted (laughs) YY because they said, this is a fraud. Okay, I was short YY, so I gave a high five to Muddy Waters, but actually when I saw their report, they had so many inaccuracies, um, and it just shows a lack of understanding on the company. So, and I was short, like, you know, if I was me, long, you know, I would say something, yeah. but I was short Huawei for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Let me jump in uh, for a second. Yeah, go ahead. I was, I was trained in the, in the early nineties by one of the most feared short sellers in the world, uh, in the under, uh, $20 range, um, in the small cap world. Uh, when this guy's four letter symbol would come on your NASDAQ level two, uh, traders would run the hell away because first thing we would do is we'd go and put a million shares on the offer and show it and start hitting bids. These short seller reports, now, short sellers do have their purpose because, number one, sometimes they're the only buyers when the thing falls apart because they're covering. So that short selling bid is necessary. But number two, if you're a short seller, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create supply, right? Because if you're short a stock that has a float of 200,000 shares, 
and it's locked up, there's nobody's going to sell it, and you're going to get grinded out. I know this because I've I've done short squeezes right for clients. So you know that whole short seller report. You got to remember, and you are right that they do have a vested interest in the price going down, because you you know you build a short position and then you put out a report saying the company is crap. In the old days, what we do before regulation SHO is we'd get short something and then you'd call the block guys and tell them that somebody's shopping 10 million shares of this thing at a 60% chop, they would start hammering the stock and we would cover, right? Interesting. So that, yeah. that's, that's how the business works. I mean, it's, it's you know creating supply, creating demand or shutting off demand. That's how you move price, right? I mean, it, yeah. you know, that, that's, you know, I'm a trader so, and I'm a mechanic. So like, if you need me to do a short squeeze, you call me pay my fee and I'll, I'll squeeze something. I've done 30 cents to 300 bucks. So, <laughs> you know, I, I used to trap shorts for a living, right? So this, these are all the things that go on beneath the surface that regularly regular investors don't know. I think, you know, Chinese companies, unfortunately have been a scapegoat and let's, let's not forget what just happened a couple of weeks ago. We've had one of the largest frauds in history pulled off by an American. Um, you know, in the crypto mm. space, I mean, yeah, $8 billion. I don't know what happens. Yeah. Right. I don't know where it is. You know, it was here. It was in one hand. Now it's in another. And now it's, oh, I don't know. Right. Like that, that's, you know, so a little bit of, uh, you know, I don't want to beat up on China. So we just got to keep things in perspective a little bit for our viewers, but yeah, that it, I find, uh, muddy waters and Citron, um, and guys like that, uh, you know, people do have to understand that um, there is an agenda. Right? That, that, that's really helpful color, JJ. Actually, Citron, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they've gone long only. Well, uh, he, I think somebody threatened his life. And uh, so he said, enough, I've had enough of this. And Andrew's been around since my penny stock days in 1995. It was called Stock Lemon before he changed mm -hmm. it to Citron. If you go into his archives, you can read all his short reports of a lot of the deals that I used to trade. So it's just funny, you know, because he would dig that he that he changed his name to Citron. He started doing larger cap stuff. But I, I really think that being a short seller in a world with a lot of cheap money is hard, especially after regulation SHO, where you actually have to borrow this stuff to short it. Mm. You know, in the old days, uh, when we financed a company, we'd short it. We'd pre-short the thing down so we could get a discount on the financing, Right. And we'd hold a short position somewhere like in Switzerland or the Cayman Islands or something like that. So we'd be off books. Uh, now those tricks aren't, you know, uh, you know, that stuff isn't readily done anymore after regulation SHO in 2005. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Ray's really good at, at, at finding uh, short targets and, you know, he does really well. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, I just wanted to give both sides of, uh, of the perspective of some of these short firms. Yeah, and, and to that's very helpful. And, and to answer Ray's question on you know how I look at shorts, um, you don't need to short just because you 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 think it's a fraud. I, I, you know, a lot of the companies that I've been shorting that's been successful because, for example, they've been losing market share to disruptors, mm -hmm. or they have been doing something kind of sneaky with financial <laughs> engineering that people are now yeah. you know putting red flags at. You know, those things. Or, you know, they're, they're operating in a secular declining industry where government influence or no government influence that is not going to save that industry. So those to me are three things I look for when I short a Chinese company. So unfortunately, you know, I'm kind of in the minority on this because all the sh short selling on China has always been fraud, 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 fraud. So I, I stopped reading them because at the end of the day, you know, the chance of that actually becoming realistic, I'm actually playing through, is extremely small. Whereas what I just said on, you know, terms of underperformance for a lot of my companies, those things actually could play through mm -hmm. uh, and they could play through faster than what the market's expecting. So that's what I'm looking for when I try to short a company. It's very, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, a lot of a lot of good food for thought. I'm, I'm definitely going to take away, Felix. Um, appreciate it, man. Um, I, got, I guess a few more questions, man. We'll get you going on your way. Um, I, I think you mentioned this a little bit briefly in the beginning, um, how like this, the sectors could be like intercorrelated. Um, are there any particular sectors of interest, though, uh, for you in China? 
Um, <clears throat> well, I so my coverage list is is mainly pan uh, entertainment, e-commerce, education, retail, fintech, uh, and a few sort of random ones. I actually made a pitch on a movie theater company that just soared seventy percent in one week last week. So I try to look for some opportunities, uh, you know, um, for short-term traders and also for longer-term investments. Um, it's hard to say to to answer your question because all the ecosystems are intertwined. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, "Oh, I like an e-commerce company like Alibaba," but then you have to realize, well, they do cloud, they do video games, they do, uh, they do, um, you know, they do load logistics they do international versus domestic i mean there's so much to think about so you can't just say oh i like email commerce i'm going to buy bob um so i it's hard to answer but what i would say is this i think china is still a disruptor on the global scene they're still very much up and coming emerging exciting growing companies in china that not many people know about um, at least right now, you know, they're not uh, as well known as say Alibaba or Tencent or, or Baidu or so forth. So those companies are the ones I'm most excited about and the ones that I've been pitching to clients to 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 dig deeper and, and to understand the long-term growth potential. Um, the other thing what I would say is a lot of the Chinese companies these days have become more global. They're not just focused on China anymore, just because China's been slowing, being a slump for a few years. So they're looking to export their expertise, so so to speak, to other parts of the world. Got to focus on that. So that's where I'm looking for opportunities. Awesome. Awesome. I guess, Felix, uh, some just general um, advice to retail traders uh, who are investing or trading Chinese stocks. Any Anything off the top, you think? What I would say is if you love trading, you got to look at Chinese stocks. These things whip around crazy. (laughs) They sure do. If you are right, you're going to make 100 times trading a Walmart or ExxonMobil in one day. So these companies have extremely high beta in some cases. I mean, obviously, I don't – in my coverage space, I'm more focused on mid-cap, large-cap, and small-cap, but a little bit on the micro-cap, but not much. But – Mm-hmm. These things can ridiculously move in both directions super yeah. fast. Like I, I don't see much of a comparison in the U.S. space unless it's like, you know, like a high flyer, uh, yeah. GameStop or AMC yeah. and so forth. Like, so I, I think you got to look at China if you love trading because mm-hmm. it's just very exciting. There's a lot of action, price action, whipping when, around. So you know, how do how do we I've trade? I pitch. How do we trade it for, for say a U.S. Uh, investor? Who, how do we how do we trade it? How do we access the data? How do we, um, you know, where where do you where do you trade something? I know you're you're a CFA, so you've got a Bloomberg, right? Yeah. But, I mean, no. for for those of us who are not blessed with a Bloomberg at you know forty grand a year, how how do we access these markets and trade them? Well, a lot of them are traded on the Nasdaq. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So trade. Yeah. The Nasdaq so most of oh, okay. my yeah, most of my coverage space are on, are on U.S. stocks, U.S. Oh, okay. Chinese okay, stocks. Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's so easy. you can trade them easily from yeah, that's your easy. Fidelity no or your Robinhood yeah. account. There's okay, no, no, I didn't. I thought you were talking about actual on on the exchanges in China, but uh, oh no, 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 that that'll be a lot more complicated. No, yeah, what exactly. I mean is just for the retail investor yeah. out there, there's plenty of U.S. listed Chinese stocks. Got it. Uh, to look at even yeah. Hong Kong listed. Oh, you of know, course, if, yeah. If you have different yeah. like uh, Charles Schwab or you yeah. know, oh yeah, yeah, no, Fidelity, no they problem. have access to international cool. markets as well. All right, thanks. Yeah, I think I think the JJ like well, and I've learned this the hard way. Felix is, uh, yeah, I mean, risk got to be first and foremost when you're trading these, <laughs> um, because as Felix mentioned, the, the the wild movements. But yeah, if you keep you know if you have good risk management, yeah, you can get some really good gains. Yeah. Um, on these stocks. I mean, probably the only thing comparable I could think of maybe is like the biotechs at times um, have similar type movements, but. Um, but biotech is more about if you get a drug, right? Approved and so yeah. forth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like the, exactly. It's hard to time those. Um, 
what I would say on the China side is as long as you understand the catalyst, that's why I'm as, you know, I'm kind of like a resource here. Mm-hmm. If you understand the upcoming catalyst for, for different companies, maybe you can time it right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Felix, I, I think throughout this podcast, um, I'm getting sold here on a Hedgeye China Pro subscription. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. It sounds like, it sounds like great value, man. Um, I'm getting a lot out of this podcast. It's been awesome, man. Um, I, I just want to, um, Touch on one last thing, because um, you were previously um, at Hedgeye, you were focused on, I believe I saw on the website, gaming, lodging, um, and leisure. I specifically want to ask you about gaming, because, um, yeah, I, 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 some from some of the stuff I've seen, like gaming has a huge future. I mean, I see the, I, I mean, I love gaming. I know the kids, the younger generation loves gaming. Just, I guess, general thoughts on the gaming industry. Uh, well, there's two types of gaming industries. I'm guessing you're re- referring to video games. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in casino too. Yeah, I'm interested okay. in that too. But no, yes, I was um, referring to video games though. Yes. So, so on video games, um, as it pertains to, you know, China and then also kind of worldwide, um, it used to be more of a sort of, you know, new releases come out and then you drive traffic. But then you had new coming channels come out like Twitch, for example, and mm-hmm. um, also a couple of game live streaming platforms in China that focus on video games. So it's it's interesting, right? And and the landscape is also changing because some of the big game video game leaders are no longer uh at, at the top in terms of having the most thought after game out there. Let me name an example. You know, there's a game called Jensen Impact. It may not be as popular as Call of Duty or Fortnite, but that game has really pretty much gone, you know, bonkers in terms of popularity among both demographics, um, female and male. Hmm. Um it's an anime game, by the way, by a private Chinese company. And the reason I mentioned that is because a lot of big gamers wanted that game to do a partnership with that company, like Tencent. Uh, and they failed. And then Tencent's like, are you kidding me? Did you just deny me? Do you know who we are? We are Tencent. We're one of the big, biggest game companies in the world. And then the, and, and they said, yeah, because we don't need you. Um, and, and look what happened. So I think going forward, it's going to be a bit more even playing field is how I envision it. Okay. Um, I think there's going to be leaders out there, you know, Activision, EA, Tencent, NetEase, but smaller guys, again, focus on the disruptors right. in China and also elsewhere where they can really change up the landscape in the video game industry. One last thing I'll say, um, Ray, on the video game industry in China is I'm sure people have been talking about this is the, all the restrictions on the miners. Right, so in China these days, you if you're under eighteen, there are certain games you can't play. But for the games you can play, I think you're only limited like three hours a week. I can't see that happening in the U.S. People will go crazy, right? <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, three hours a week. That's it. That's it. And uh-huh. um, uh, or yeah, I think it's three three hours a week. So I no. So my point here is at least for China game restrictions have already been placed um, and they have to move forward in this new normal mm-hmm. uh, with a regulatory cycle where, you know, they're, they're taking out so-called bloody controversial games with, you know, maybe even. Um, so I, I think going forward, at least for China, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, which also means the game approval process is going to be uh, stretched out. So it's going to be taking longer for you to get new game approval in China. Um, but that said, there's a lot of interesting new game titles coming out. Yeah. Uh, but maybe we'll have to save that for another discussion. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Would. Yes, because yeah, that stuff, uh, I do find that interesting too as well. Um, yeah, sorry, I said that was the last question, but I, I just thought of one more here, Felix. Um, absolutely. I've, uh, I, I haven't really looked into it. I've seen uh, just passing headlines in the past but uh what what's china or you know i guess the chinese population's um general view on cryptocurrency oh okay great question so crypto has 
officially banned in China, um, but unofficially, some of the transactions are still flowing through in in some opaque channels in in China. Mm-hmm. The reason why it's banned is very simple. There's been money laundering. There's been very sketchy transactions involved with crypto. So China basically tried to put the stop to that. Um, but as always with just anything around the world, there's always underground operations being involved. And if you look at the mining activities still, so there are some in China. What's interesting is Hong Kong because Hong Kong is more open-minded to cryptocurrency. So if you're a retail trader trading currency um, in Hong Kong, you're gonna ha- there's a possibility heading into next year, you, you, you're gonna have more options. And it'll be a lot easier to trade those and to, you know, to jump through less regulatory hoops. Um, so I was generally thinking, you know, from, at least Hong Kong is a little bit more open to, to mm-hmm. crypto. But China, no, they they basically said this is unregulated. We don't know too much about it. It's leading to illicit transactions, money laundering. They've already cracked down on so many cryptocurrency. They call them cryptocurrency crime gains um, <laughs> with illicit transactions. So that's something that's not going to change in the near yeah, future. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because I, I, I believe I remember, it might even been a couple of years ago because there was a lot of um, my, mining operations, right? Like Bitcoin mining operations. Yeah, huge. Yeah, huge. yeah, yeah. But then, you know, I don't know if you re- I don't know if you remember that it, le- it kind of indirectly led to a power outage in China. Um, oh, did it? Conserve power. And but they said it was to the other reasons, but I think you know part of it could be all the mining that was involved, and but wow. the, so 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 that's why the government had to crack down on that. Um, Interesting, yeah. good stuff. So that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a supportive and professional community of traders, you can join us at microefutures.com. Felix, let the listeners know where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. Yeah, absolutely. You can follow me on Hedge Eye China. That's my Twitter handle. Also, definitely connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, absolute pleasure, Ray and JJ. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Felix. Um, I guess JJ, parting words. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. I look forward to, you know, keep in touch. I look forward to, you know, chatting with you in the future. And uh, I, I, I think um, there's a lot of opportunity in, in what you say. And uh, we'd love to, uh, you know, we'd love to stay in touch and come back and visit us soon. Thank you so much. Absolutely. All right. So for Felix Wang, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. So.